It's my honor to welcome all of you to the annual Human Rights at Duke Lecture. The annual Human Rights at Duke Lecture was established in 2018 as a forum for scholars and practitioners to discuss current human rights, research, and activism. It is a collaboration between the two Duke Human Rights Centers here on campus at the Franklin Humanities Institute and at the Keenan Institute of Ethics. This year, we are also grateful for the support of the Center for Muslim Life, the Muslim Students Association, Duke's Amnesty International, Duke University Middle East Study Center, and the Duke Islamic Study Center. Together, we would like to welcome Imam Omar Suleiman in giving the 2019 Annual Human Rights at Duke Lecture on the topic of human rights, faith, and the border. Imam Omar Suleiman is a well-known religious leader and theologically driven activist for human rights. He is the founder and president of the Aqeen Institute for Islamic Research and an adjunct professor of Islamic studies in the graduate liberal studies program at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. He is also the resident scholar at the, of the Valley Ranch Islamic Center and co-chair emeritus of Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square, a multi-faith coalition of clergy for peace and justice. He frequently writes for news outlets such as CNN, USA Today, The Guardian, The Huffington Post, and The Dallas Morning News. And in May 2019, he delivered the invocation in the U.S. House of Representatives at the invitation of Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson. He has been active in community service, interfaith dialogue, and social justice work for a number of years. And it is through this work that he came to the attention of Emily Stewart, the wonderful assistant director of the Duke Human Rights Center and the director of Teaching for Equity Fellows program here at Duke. In July 2019, Imam Suleiman was one of the leaders of the Moral Monday on the Borderlands action that took place in El Paso, Texas. With only weeks of advance notice, more than 500 people showed up to witness what was happening to our brothers and sisters on the border. As Emily has recounted, it was a powerful experience to be surrounded by so many people of faith gathering together for a common purpose, to stand up against an injustice felt deeply within. Some saw this moment in history as a reckoning of the souls. Imam Suleiman has also participated in the Love Knows No Borders, a moral call for migrant justice action that the American Friends Service Committee helped organize when the migrant caravan arrived. Drawing from his deep involvement, we all welcome Imam Suleiman to give the annual Human Rights at Duke Lecture on Human Rights, Faith, and the Border. Please join me in welcoming him. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you all. How's the, oh, it's good. You guys can hear me now, right? Okay, my voice is not that much louder than hers, I promise. So um, it's a pleasure to be here 
with you all this evening. We begin in the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful, and we pray that he surrounds us with his mercy and that he brings us together in a way that is unifying and in a way that's productive and in a way that we move beyond uh, simply grieving over the horrific situation that we see at the border and otherwise and actually be mobilized to action. Um, so the way that I want to divide this lecture is to actually start with my own personal experience at working at the border and what I've seen at the border and then go from there and transition into how we start to compare this crisis to other uh, situations which we see um, around the world. Should I stop for a moment? Or are, we, are we good? Is it working? Is it going up and down or are you guys hear, you guys hear me throughout? Okay, good. Everyone gave a thumbs up. So I'm going to start off with, with just a personal uh, side of this and transition into, again, what's taking place at the border and how we can actually have a serious policy discussion as a country about what we're supposed to do about the situation. Now, on a personal level, my parents are refugees. My parents are migrants. So I understand that reality in a very different way. Um, my parents are both Palestinian. They met at University of Houston. And so my entire reality is American. I was born and raised in New Orleans. And by the way, Zion, Pelicans. So we have a connection now. Um, but, you know, I understood that reality in a very different way because growing up I knew my parents' story, but at the same time I hadn't really experienced my parents' reality. They had a very difficult time um, finding their way in the United States of America, but both of them uh, rose to distinguished positions and were able to not just make the most of their situations as far as the individual American dream is concerned, but to be very giving people and people that taught us as well to care deeply about refugees. And so I have these memories of coming home and uh, you know, my dad didn't pick us up from school and when I said why, he said we gave our car away. Who did we give our car away to? We gave it away to Somali refugees. Another memory of coming home and uh, learning that there were nine Bosnian refugees that were gonna live in our small uh, home for some time until uh, we were able to situate them. And so that idea of being deeply connected to political struggles, deeply connected to people was something that I grew up with at a very personal level. And then there's the faith-based element of this. As Muslims in particular, where our religion encompasses uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, it encompasses Moses, peace be upon him, and Abraham, peace be upon him, and Jesus, peace be upon him, and of course, uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him. All of them share that common story of migration. They all share that common story of being persecuted and run out by their people. And though God is the ultimate caretaker, in those stories, you always have another human being on the other side that acts as the vehicle of God's mercy that takes them in and that chooses to support them. Again, a vehicle of God's mercy to them. And of course, we're going to do this one. I promise we'll get this right. I feel like I'm at a protest. If you ever had a protest and you're given like a 10-minute speech, you could have switched five mics in 10 minutes. But... Time out. You sure? You want to take this one out the way too? Can you hear me now? You guys hear me well now? All right, great. So you can take this one away, or should I leave it here? Take it away. Take it to come on. Um, 
And so there's that faith story that it was always a vehicle of God's mercy on the other end of that migration that took those prophets in and that championed their rights and supported them, even if they didn't necessarily believe in the calling that caused them to be driven out in the first place. Okay? So there's that, that idea of prophethood and, and where we stand with the prophets of God and that their story is so deeply intertwined with the story of migration to the point that in Islam, our calendar is known as the Hijri calendar. It's the calendar of migration. We start our calendar by the migration of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, fleeing persecution received by the people of Medina. Uh, at that time, Yathrib, and taking him in and sharing their resources with the Prophet, peace be upon him, and knowing that by sharing with the Prophet and sharing with those that migrated with him, that their society would be enriched and that they would be enriched spiritually as well as socially by the presence of those blessed people that were fleeing those detrimental circumstances. And there's something to be said also about how, and maybe that's another discussion, but the people of Medina, for those of you that are familiar with the Islamic story of Medina, the people of Medina had their own tribal divisions and were trying to find their own identity, but were ultimately united in supporting another group of people. And in offering themselves, they found the best of themselves in championing the Muhajireen, championing those that migrated from Mecca, and gained the collective identity of being the Ansar, of being the supporters, the helpers. Literally, the name of the people of Medina, those tribes became the helpers. And they were too busy helping the other that became of them to fight amongst each other anymore. And so there's something to be said about our politics as well as, as, as a country, when people are united in good, that usually causes things that potentially could pit them against one another to dwindle in importance. Because there's a common unifying purpose of good that brings out the best of ourselves and tribalism feasts on the lowest of ourselves. And so that is the story of our religion. That's the story of our faith. And from a migration ethics perspective, if, uh, I did a, a lecture series of which I'm compiling a book right now uh, 40 on justice, 40 prophetic traditions on justice. If you search up the lecture series, 40 hadiths on social justice. 40 hadiths on social justice. One of them was about migration ethics in Islam and how we draw from that. And I also had the blessing of co-authoring a letter with Imam Zaid Shakir um, to the Muslim community as we launched the Muslims for Migrants campaign, paying bail money for migrant parents and reuniting them with their families that talks about migration ethics in Islam. I don't want that to become the source of this discussion, but just to say that there is both a personal experience as well as a faith-based uh, experience. Now, where does my journey with this start? It actually doesn't start at the border of Texas and Mexico. It actually starts in Syria. Since the, the massacre of the Syrian people had led them to Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, Greece, all over the world, some even in Dallas, Texas, where we are, I had the opportunity over a few years to actually go to the border of Syria, sometimes because of the political situation at the border, actually enter into Dara, into Syria, and work with the refugees there, depending on who controlled the border at the time, particularly the Jordanian and the Syrian border. My first time going to the Syrian border to do work with the refugees gave this entire discussion a new element for me. I have young children, and every time I met children, they seemed to be of the same age as my children. I kept on finding that the names were similar to the names that were known to me. My mother was born in Damascus. I'd never been to Syria before the war. And 
There were two combating emotions as I was leaving those camps. And I had the opportunity to go four times. One was the emotion of humanizing the refugees and the people that had been uh, not just tortured and not just having a piece of their lives or, or, or their family members taken away from them, but, but actually creating a human connection with them and feeling activated for their cause in an entirely different way. That's one emotion of connecting to the Syrian people. But the second one was every time you finish doing refugee work, when you drive out of camps, anyone that's ever been to refugee camps, you can't help but be overcome by despair when you realize that you're driving miles and miles and miles away and there are no lights and there, is no, there, there are no comfortable accommodations that make the nightmare go away for them. And you may have helped a hundred, but you just saw tents that encompass a hundred thousand people. So you start to wonder, well, am I really making a difference here? Am I really making a change? So family separation the family separation policy was handed down by the Trump administration uh, last year. And of course, that was brought to the attention of the American people, the images of family separation, some elements of which took place under the Obama administration as well, but certainly the country had become acquainted with this topic of family separation in a whole different way. And I and a group of people went to McAllen, Texas, where children that were taken from their families were put and are put in warehouses. Warehouses for tires and glass and all other sorts of materials that have been converted into children detention centers. Child detention centers that we pay hundreds of dollars for each child on a daily basis from our taxes, where people are sleeping on concrete floors with no, window, with no windows and no one to actually hold the administrators of those camps accountable or to, to, to do proper medical checkups or to uh, give proper legal access to those children that are in those centers. As we protested outside those detention centers, we noticed there was a bus that was coming out that was full of children. Uh, at that time, of course, we acted instinctively we surrounded the bus in protest. We didn't really know what we were going to do with the bus, but we were all driven to surround the bus in protest. And we were able to hold the bus for about 20 minutes with those children on board. And that's when I had a chance to actually walk up to the bus, and the, the windows were deeply tinted, and I could see the children through the windows. And so I put my hand up on the glass, and the children on the bus started to congregate around that row, and each one of them would put their hand on my hand on the glass. Some of them were crying, some were smiling, some were waving, some would just put their hand up and stare at me with absolutely no expression, the same blank expression that I'd seen in the faces of the children of Syria. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through in my life because it was as if there was another realm of people that were permanently and physically removed from me that I could not even speak to because I couldn't hear their voices. I could see that some of them were crying, but I couldn't actually hear their cries. And perhaps if we were able to converse, I wouldn't have even been able to understand what they were saying because I wouldn't speak their languages. But for those moments, putting your hand on a glass 
Those of you that are familiar with the cruelty of the prison experience in the United States, where families, where a father or mother will, will, will interact with their child only through glass, putting hands on glass and looking those children in the eyes and praying for them, but not being able to touch them, not being able to comfort them, not being able to hand them a toy, not being able to, to, to give them a bottle of water, not being able to offer any type of comfort whatsoever, except for those moments of connecting, never knowing their names, never knowing their stories, just knowing that these were a bunch of children that were ripped away from their families and being transported from warehouse to warehouse. And the fact that some of them, in fact, pretty much all of the children on that bus were willing to give themselves to me for that moment and put their hand on my hand so I could pray for them and I could look at them while I prayed for them. Brought this entire spectacle of dehumanization to another level for me. And again, I had to go back to those two competing emotions. Is it about me being able to comfort a few of them, to be able to go home at night and say, I made a difference? Or is it about connecting with them enough to where their humanity, their humanity becomes so undeniable to me as a human being, to where their cause becomes so precious to me that not only am I activated to work for them and to try to lift them out of their horrific situation, but I'm able also to carry their stories to other people that won't have that interaction. And then I started to realize, if you look at these two images, one of them is Torneo, Texas. The other one is the Zaatari refugee camp, the biggest Syrian refugee camp in Jordan. The images become identical. You start to see children in tents. You start to see people that live in inhumane conditions. The biggest difference between what I saw in Zaatari and Mafraq in the Syrian tents and what I saw in Torneo, Texas was the presence of military in Torneo, Texas. I had the opportunity to go to Torneo, Texas, which was known as Tent City, uh, due to a, an, an order given by Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins where we could offer pastoral care to the children. We were not allowed to take pictures. We were not allowed to, uh, to share anything of the identity of the children that we would work with, but we were allowed to go pray with them. I took it. A few of us from Dallas decided to actually travel to Torneo a few times and to work with the children there. I, not speaking Spanish, or some of the other languages present in the refugees from El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras uh, simply had verses of comfort from the Quran translated into Spanish that did not have any, uh, any particular the specific theological implications, just verses about comfort and verses about ease and verses about love and mercy and supplication. I had them translated by a friend of mine and I just took them on paper and decided that I would read them. And then we also would sneak in some arts and crafts and just have some time to do basic arts and crafts with the kids that were there. For some of them, their only experience being Catholicism, they just took us all as priests. And so I had bread, and some of them took it as communion. And I didn't realize that was happening until two or three times when I realized that they were doing communion, and I was trying to give bread out. Uh, you know, as, as food and drink, but uh, 
I would assume that the majority of them had never interacted with a Muslim before, never interacted with an Imam before, and were probably just really confused by me. And then, uh, after that, they started to come and they started to ask us for prayers. Each and every single child asked for us to pray for their moms. All they would say is, pray for my mom. And it struck me that in Dallas, when the family separation policy was first handed down and some of these children were put on commercial flights, they were writing notes and they were sneaking them to passengers with their mom's phone numbers on them, trying to find their parents. It dawned on me again that we are looking at dehumanization and torture and oppression in so many different ways. The administrators at Tornillo, Texas, made it a point to try to assure us that these kids are well-fed and that they're even getting some recess time behind barbed wire. They get to go kick a soccer ball around. We give them popsicles on days that they're good. But you can't give them back their moms. And they have no idea why they are in that situation, what they are doing there, nor do they understand why they are being, uh, why, why they are the source of fear for so many Americans when they're just kids trying to live a normal life. The next image that I'm going to show you is, uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a very painful one, so I'll, I'll give you all uh, sort of a warning um, of this image. But when you start to connect, once again, the dots between poverty and, and the refugee crisis, the global refugee crisis, and before I actually put it up there, uh, how many of you have seen the documentary Human Float? It's a fascinating documentary. It talks about the global refugee crisis. You know, if you start to travel the world enough, you start to realize that every refugee camp at some point starts to look the same. Poverty starts to look the same around the world. Once you spend enough time around it, uh, the conditions start to resemble one another as you start to travel. This next image is one that, two of them, that, that struck us deeply. They're painful and they look the same. On one side, you have Elan Kurdi, Syrian refugee who washed up a resort, on the shores of a resort, speaking to the neglect of the Syrian people around the world, a child. We have tried to ignore this crisis. We have tried to tell ourselves that someone else is going to take care of them. And people are being confronted through their TV screens, through their, through their computers, of this global refugee crisis. And it trends for a few days, but just like everything else, Donald Trump tweets something else out, and our attention is distracted once again, while they remain in their detriment. Elan al-Kurdi, when this image came out on the left of that Syrian refugee, there were discussions that took place on the global stage about whether or not this was going to be the one. This was going to be the one that changed the conversation about Syrian refugees and their treatment around the world, their treatment in Europe, the Muslim ban. That didn't happen. On the right side, a father and a daughter that drowned in the Rio Grande, trying to escape persecution enter into the United States. The father with his arm around his daughter, I cannot imagine what those last conversations were like of despair, of trying to rescue his daughter and give her a new life. 
And often, by the way, in the discussion of the migrant children, we demonize the parents. I heard that rhetoric in the dreamers debate over and over and over again. It's not their fault, it's their parents' fault. But their parents did not come here for themselves or to get better jobs. Their parents came here so that their children could actually have the lives that they could not have. They are not to be vilified. The pain that those parents feel when they, cannot, when they do not succeed at giving their children the decency and dignity that they deserve is a very real pain and one that can indeed be fatal. On the left, Ragat, a Syrian refugee. On the right, Jacqueline Kal, the young girl from Guatemala. This is probably one of my favorite images and paintings that displays how I feel like we need to treat this entire discussion of border ethics. Before I get into policy and legislation and the ethics of it as to what we can do, this was a painting by uh, an Omani painter uh, about the Syrian refugee crisis on a canvas. What we have to do is not just be disturbed. We have to be disturbed enough to act disturbed enough to disrupt the comfort of people around us that think that we can simply turn away from this and continue to perpetuate the policies that lead to these detrimental circumstances over and over and over again. And so I want to talk about for a moment how we actually take this forward from a policy perspective because it's very easy to feel debilitated and to feel completely incapacitated when you, when you see all of these things and you realize, how many can I actually help? There's the element of charity. And charity is wonderful so long as it is not used as a means of escaping policy. A good friend of mine who works in, uh, in, in combating homelessness told me that it's great that you take sandwiches out to the homeless on a Saturday morning but when are you actually going to try to end homelessness instead of taking a sandwich out on Saturday morning? No one will really reprimand you or admonish you for taking sandwiches out to the homeless. But when you start to challenge predators and slumlords and city councils that are usually bought by some of those same powerful people into the zoning issues and the racialized poverty that continues to perpetuate homelessness, you better believe that you will have opponents and that you will end up being political even if you just wanted to do charity. In Dallas, we had the blessing of opening a center called Dallas Response. We were able to connect with the border at El, with, with, uh, with some of the facilities in El Paso and to get permission uh, to accommodate some of the asylum seekers and to connect them with their sponsors. You guys remember that image of the 962 people stacked up in El Paso in a detention center from a few months ago? Those were asylum seekers whose legal cases for asylum had already been approved. These were not people that tried to jump a fence or a wall. These were people whose cases had already been approved. But they were not being given the opportunity to connect with their sponsors. And so they have 72 hours to connect with their sponsors. And we were able to connect with those facilities and to get the permission to host uh, some of those, those uh, refugees, those migrants, and those facilities in Dallas 
and to connect them to their sponsors within 72 hours. And so Dallas Response pulled together the hotel associations, pulled together uh, uh, the, the, the bus networks around the country, uh, airlines, all sorts of things to be able to connect people quickly, but before that, to bring them into Dallas to Oaklawn United Methodist Church, where they would have a, you know, a, a, a decent transition, where they would be able to, uh, to sleep in a, in a comfortable place, comfortable in, you know, in serious quotation marks here, because relative to the facilities that they were leaving, you know, anything is comfortable when you're, not sitting on a, when you're not standing on a toilet or drinking from a toilet, right? Uh, we were able to provide cots and meals and, and just basic facilities in the meantime while we connected them to their sponsors. Now, one of the things that was fascinating about Dallas Responds is that we were able to connect uh, faith groups that lean politically conservative, that do not agree with most of us on what immigration reform actually looks like. But I'll never forget what the head of uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints in Dallas said. He said, I don't know what the solution to the immigration problem is or what's happening at the border is, but this isn't it. And the Church of Latter-day Saints mobilized to get those cots provided, to provide all sorts of aid and relief. The Jews and the Muslims competed over who would provide the food. <laughs> and so breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you had nice Muslim-Jewish controversy over who was going to provide the meals for those people. You had faith groups that came together that showed the best of our faiths and compassion and demonstrated that our hearts are bigger than our policies currently suggest, that there are people that are willing to work and to volunteer to do what needs to be done to relieve some of our brothers and sisters at the border of the pain that they are in. So we were able to connect and we were able to facilitate that. But again, it always comes down to, what about policy? Now, in this America, as far as the left is concerned, as far as Democrats are concerned, Trump is always the lowest common denominator. Right? So the brutality of what takes place under this current administration is unacceptable. We cannot have children in cages. We cannot have ICE raids to this level, to this extent. We can't do this. We can't do that. If you watch every presidential debate, you're going to hear the same talking points over and over and over again. But how do you actually move beyond this isn't it to something that is longer lasting and something that actually solves the problem? we have a discussion about American foreign aid. And we talk about those countries that we destabilized, that our country destabilized politically and economically. We deported or we exported gang violence, ruined political infrastructures, destroyed the economic infrastructures of the very countries that these people are fleeing, created many of those conditions not 400 years ago, but 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, when you're talking about Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador, and now those same people that flee the conditions that we helped create, we say, sorry, you are not welcome here because America first. And so how do we actually talk about foreign aid? So when the discussion comes up in a, about America actually uh, trying to carry out its duties as a, as, as a country that's supposed to lead on the global scene morally, by putting money back into, into those societies, stabilizing those societies, cleaning up a lot of the mess that we created, then it becomes a discussion about our foreign aid. 
where our country has no problem whatsoever spending billions and billions and billions of dollars to either kill people and destabilize regions or maintain our positioning as the United States of America, our power in certain regions around the world. We have no issue putting billions and billions of dollars in military aid to nations that we have no business whatsoever giving money to so that they could maintain their control and maintain their power and maintain our American interests in those places. But when it comes to us taking the responsibility of helping to clean up much of the mess that we created, then suddenly the discussion about foreign aid comes in once again. When we talk about private detention centers and the discussion about private detention centers, I want you to look up Southwest Key and understand how Trump donors gross $450 million off of the same policies that Trump is creating. And recognize that what we're essentially talking about is a government trafficking operation that we're simply turning away from. But is it really immoral or is it, is it really radical to challenge the existence of private detention centers and to ask ourselves, why is it that these detention centers are able to make money off of the policies that continue to yield uh, catastrophic conditions for human beings at the border or otherwise? When the discussion of abolishment of ICE comes up, oh my God, you are a radical. How dare you talk about abolishing ICE? Don't you realize that you know, when, when, those, when those airports that Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan were, you know, were under attack, it was the ICE you know, the ICE agents that came in and that protected America's integrity. If you have a driver's license, you're older than ICE. But this idea that it's somehow a historical American institution has solidified itself in so many people's minds that till now, I think to my, to, to my knowledge, the only Democratic presidential candidate that's actually said that we should abolish ICE or have, and, and redistribute uh, some of the money that's been allocated to it to other institutions is Bill de Blasio. I don't know if anyone else has actually taken that position of abolishing ICE because you sound like a crazy radical if you talk about abolishing ICE. Now, in order for us to properly understand it, well, we need to understand its, its formation, its establishment in the first place. From an ethical perspective, ICE was formed out of the Department of Homeland Security, which was created under the Bush administration. DHS was formed in an Islamophobic climate. The entire institution of DHS was formed in an Islamophobic climate. It was formed, in my mind, and I think objectively, in a lie that Muslims are more dangerous than other people, which America's uh, one and a half a day mass shootings would tell you uh, we've got much bigger problems than Muslims. But it was formed in a lie that Muslims pose a greater threat to the homeland than other people. And many of the initiatives that stem from that are rooted in Islamophobic thinking. ICE was formed out of DHS, also out of a lie that immigrants pose a greater threat, that illegal immigrants pose a greater threat to society than ordinary Americans. Where objectively speaking, areas where there are high portions, high populations of undocumented immigrants, where people are in that situation, you do not find any correlating evidence to suggest that people that are undocumented are more violent or more likely to, to, to be of a threat to the homeland. 
And so if you think about this idea that, you know, that's, that someone actually thought that it was a good idea to create a military-like force and allocate billions and billions of dollars every year annually to send this militarized force through impoverished communities of schools and places of worship and courthouses and stop people in Walmart parking lots and ask them for their passports and then strip them away from their families and put them into the system where those same private detention centers are fed and putting that family in permanent detriment was a good idea. And it's for the safety of the United States of America. Then we need to have a broader discussion. What I always tell people is that before we could talk about abolishing ICE, we need to talk about abolishing the premise of ICE because it's a false premise, an entirely false premise that the agency was founded on. After Muslim ban, Dallas has uh, the, the largest uh, ICE raids around the country. And after Muslim ban, just a week after Muslim ban, there was a, a, uh, a well-known honest man that was picked up by ICE in the community. And his children for that week, grown children, were urinating on themselves in school because every day when they went to school, they were wondering if their father was going to be home when they came home. And you think about that fear that, that's created in the community now, where honest, hardworking people who have tried to do things right but ended up in a horrific situation where their papers expired and due to technicalities and loopholes and other things, they were not able to gain legal documentation. And now they've got their heads down and they're just trying to do what's right for their families. But people are afraid of who? They're afraid of law enforcement. They're afraid of any type of public situation which could lend itself to this militarized force raiding and picking up a bunch of people, sometimes, by the way, even American citizens, because they're brown, and putting them in ICE detention centers, ultimately deporting them and leaving their family in consistent peril. If you think about that and the ethical stain that that leaves on our country, that we have accepted that as normal, that it's okay for children in Mississippi whose parents were trying to make an honest living in these plants, taking low-paying jobs, waiting for us to figure out our immigration issue, are on the streets begging for sandwiches and for water. And if you ask yourself, do you, you know, is that anything? Does that do anything to make us safer? Does it do anything to make us better? Because often, we pit those two things against each other. Does it make us safer? Does it make us better? Is this something that we're okay with? Because it's not just at the border. The border crisis exists in the inner cities in America. It's not just at the border. And oftentimes we focus disproportionately on the border in the physical sense, ignoring the realities that take place in our inner cities. And, you know, if, if you think about what this means in terms of policing, what this means in terms of school, what this means in terms of, you know, if this is supposed to root out violent criminals, imagine people not wanting to call the police or not wanting to call law enforcement in, in the worst of situations because they're afraid that ICE is going to show up and pick a bunch of people up as well. And so you'll have domestic violence that goes unaddressed. Things that are not restricted to an immigrant reality, things that are a part of the human reality in America that are as, as American as anything else, but they're not going addressed because you have a militarized force that goes through communities and rips families apart on a daily basis, and no one 
wants to deal with that. I actually share with you something very personal that happened uh, with me on Wednesday. On Wednesday night, I was driving to teach class at, at SMU, or I was in a car on my way to class at SMU. One of my students was driving. And as we were exiting the highway, there was a rainbow. And he was remarking on how beautiful that rainbow was, and he was talking about how the cars are stopping, you know, slowing down because they're looking at that beautiful rainbow. Just as he says that, we get popped in the back. Just as he says that. And pull over, and it's a young, undocumented man who is shivering and crying because he says, I was just looking at the rainbow. Please don't call the police and get me taken away from my children. I'll do anything. Here's my passport. I have cash. Whatever it is, I'll fix your car. But I have a three-year-old. I have a one-year-old. I was just looking at the rainbow. And you know what? We didn't call the police. And I thought to myself, you know, at that moment, what a blatant injustice that if that was me driving that car, and I happen to be looking at the rainbow and I pop someone by accident, then I could pull over to the side, call the, call the police, call the insurance companies, and it becomes a nuisance, it becomes a, an incident, but at the same time, I have no fear whatsoever of going back home and living the rest of my life normally. But it struck home. It actually struck me five days ago. And this is the paranoia and the culture that we are creating here uh, within our inner cities. If you talk about the way that we are failing to process the over 800 legal asylum cases that exist at the border right now, as those people that came through through Dallas response, we had white supremacist protesters that were threatening to blow up the church because we were taking people that had legal asylum cases processed but just did not have the opportunity to connect to their sponsors. What does it mean to expand the legal avenues of immigration so that people do not have to resort to these types of situations in the first place? What does it mean to provide a pathway for dreamers who are just as American as anybody else, who know nothing but an American reality, except that it's not reflected on paper? And not just provide a pathway for them, but their parents who have also come here and made an honest living for themselves and for their children. And then you start to have some of the more substantive discussions. Uh, Beto O'Rourke has, um, has a very interesting part of his immigration plan called the community visa idea. And the community visa idea reflects the Canadian system, where communities are actually able to sponsor refugees, take care of refugees. Um, not sponsor them entirely, but sponsor them to the point that they can ensure that their, their basic needs are met. Why not give the American people and these places of worship a chance to actually rise to the best version of themselves, especially places of worship that have been at the front lines of combating other types of, of, of ills, societal ills that plague our community? Why not allow them to rise? If we had a substantive discussion about what it means to decriminalize crossing into the border, once again, there's this idea that things are historically applied. And so when you say decriminalize crossing the border, illegally crossing the border, it sounds like what you're talking about is letting ISIS and all sorts of horrific gangs overrun the border. The reality is, is that even though there were laws that criminalized crossing into the border or crossing the border uh, for years and years and years that, it, that are actually historical, more historical than ICE, they were not actually enforced until the Bush years. 
And I don't recall us having this massive immigration problem in the 90s, where gangs ran the border and, uh, and, and the country started to fall apart because suddenly you had illegal immigrants that were coming into the country and forming all sorts of uh, cities within cities, right? So these, I, these, are, these are challenging and substantive discussions that we have to have. You saw the Democratic presidential candidates when the question of health care came up, when you talk about universal health care. Do you also mean universal health care for illegal immigrants? Oh my God, no, wait, hold on. We have no issues taking taxes or social security from people who are undocumented. Shouldn't there be a basic ethical function of what you put into the system you get back as a guaranteed right? And so the challenge becomes, how do we actually start to form a moral framework that addresses these issues, not in isolation of one another, but in a comprehensive way? And so I want to put forth a few ideas here, and then I'll open it up to Q&A. Number one, the value of a human being, the sanctity of a human being, and actually looking at the sanctity of a human being as the foundation for any discussion of any person, whether they are American citizens, legal uh, immigrants, or migrants that are undocumented, starting with the value of a human being. And I actually wanna, wanna read a, a statement from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, that, I found, that I found very important to this discussion. I had the blessing of, of being at University of Michigan last week and I gave a lecture on the intersecting legacies of Malcolm and Martin. And one of the things about Dr. King is that in those last three years of his life, his view on Vietnam not just his policy on Vietnam, but the, the evolution of what he was saying about the Vietnam War is very instructive. When Dr. King first challenged the Vietnam War, he challenged it on the basis of America spending money on war while it had plenty to spend on here in the United States. If we could not rid ourselves of poverty and the horrific conditions that take place domestically here in the United States, how could we send you know, these, these tens of millions of dollars to war and destroy other countries in the process? And then it evolved into something else. Dr. King started to talk about how we were sending off people that did not have liberties here in the United States to fight for that same liberty that they were being deprived of. Sending African Americans off to war to fight for liberties, to guarantee the liberties and freedom that they were not experiencing in any substantive form at the moment. And then, if you look at 67 and 68, before Dr. King was assassinated, something happens in his thinking and in his speeches. He starts to talk about the war from the perspective of Vietnam, of the children on the other side, of the people that were experiencing war, not just from this side, of the barrel with the other side. And Dr. King said something uh, that, I, that, that I find stunning in this regard. He said, a genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. Imagine then what Dr. King would say to America first with the implications that that statement actually comes with. And so you start from a, from a moral framework, which is seeing every human being essentially as a human being that has their dignity protected 
And that when we take care of other people, that when we open ourselves to, 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 to cater, to care, to show compassion for other human beings, that it brings out the best of our patriotism, it brings out the best of our humanity, it brings the best out of our religious beliefs as well. You get to see people, you know, there's this concept of, in the Quran of people competing in good. You get to see religious communities competing to do good, competing in, in, in this belief, not just that every human being is a human being that has God-given rights, but every human being is honored and dignified by God. And to not honor and dignify that human being is actually to not honor God himself. To take it into that dimension, there's a beautiful prophetic tradition. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that on the day of judgment, God will say to a person, O son of Adam, I was sick and you did not visit me. I was poor and you did not provide for me. I was hungry and you did not feed me. And so the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that a person would say to God, O oh God, how could I feed you and you are the Lord of the world? And God would say that, don't you know that my servant so-and-so was hungry and had you fed him, you would have found my reward with him? Oh God, how could I provide for you and you are the Lord of the worlds? Don't you know my servant so-and-so was poor and had you provided for him, you would have found my reward with him? Oh God, how could I visit you and you are the Lord of the worlds? And he says, don't you know that my servant so-and-so was ill and had you visited my servant, you would have found me with him? So this idea of actually starting operating first and foremost from a premise that every child is dignified and honored by God and when you don't honor and dignify that child, you are dishonoring yourself. You are dehumanizing yourself. You know, Dr. King talked about racism, not just being dehumanizing to the victim of racism, but to the racists themselves. You are rendering yourself inhuman when you don't act upon basic human instincts that are put in you by the divine. And so when we talk about America first, and we talk about protecting our borders, what does it mean to protect our soul as a country, our actual soul as a nation? When we talk about domestic policy, can we really talk about a domestic policy without talking about our foreign policy? And if we talk about reparations in this country as the right thing to do, because America has a past, with its citizens now as well. An inequity that has never been resolved. And so when we talk about reparations here, how do we broaden that to an ethical framework that you do actually bear some responsibility to fix the mess that you have created, be it domestic or abroad, that you do bear responsibility to people who you have put in a detrimental situation. When we talk about America thriving. Can we talk about America thriving, not in spite of the world, but actually through being a productive citizen of the world as a nation? And you know, it's, 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 it's always stunning to me that when we talk about these issues, we act like we don't have a legal framework or a policy place to start. There are immigration advocacy groups that do have it figured out, you know, they do actually have it worked out as to what an ethical policy looks like in dealing with the border. And I can tell you that 
None of those discussions revolve around a wall. <laughs> the problem is not a wall or a lack of a wall. The wall represents something. The wall represents a low base white nativism, but it's not actually about a wall, is it? Because you don't have people really climbing a wall. You have people stuck in Juarez. You have people stuck at the border. You have people either in refugee camps on the other side or in concentration camps on our side. You have people in these horrific situations, and then you have a, an unfounded fear, a baseless fear that distracts from the real fear that we should be having in our country, that our country is imploding not because of illegal immigrants, not because of people on the outside or conditions that are caused from the outside. Our country is imploding for unresolved American issues unresolved native problems, but through the lens of white nativism, we've made it about a wall and keeping people out. The reality is that we can be enriched by immigration, that we have been enriched by immigration, that people that have come to this country, that those that have migrated to this country have been of the most productive citizens, and I use the word citizens intentionally to it. They have been productive, they have they have worked to the enrichment of this country. They have lived in fear due to irrational fear that causes them to live in that perpetual uncertainty. And we have a responsibility as people of faith and people of no faith to not just challenge our country to act in a more dignified fashion towards them, but to challenge our country to live up to its purported ideals. And so with that, I'm going to open it up to Q&A. I uh, appreciate you all being out here. I'm sorry if I took a little bit too long. Is that working? Oh my goodness, it's working. Um, thank you so much, Imam Suleiman. And um, I just want to let people know that if you want to use our overflow, overflow room for prayers, it's just to the left in East Duke 108. Um, and please feel free to come back as we have uh, a question and answer session for about 30 minutes. And, yeah, and uh, several small rooms that you can feel free to use if, if you would like to. Um, we are going to open it for question and answer. This mic is very sensitive. So um, we have this mic, which uh, Omar Benalal will take around if you raise your hand. If you prefer to write out a question, we also have note cards um, that we will be handing out. Um, Emily, do you have the note cards? Have note cards. Oh, oh uh, Omar has the note cards. <laughs> He's multi-talented. If you would like a note card to write out a question, please raise your hand, and Omar can come around and give you one. Or Zach can go around and give you one. <laughs> um, and uh, if you would like to ask a question, I would just ask you to try to make your question relatively brief so we can include as many people as possible. And if you could kind of restrict it to questions as opposed to comments, we would really appreciate it. Finally, after the event concludes, just outside, we have some desserts and tea. So you'll have a chance to talk to Imam Suleiman outside in the lobby here. 
please feel free to stay, have, have a little something to eat, and, and continue the conversation informally. So, so you're going to take it over there. Um, so I have a question about what our priorities should be as a nation. Should we direct our priorities to providing relief to these countries that we have wronged in the past, or should we direct our attention to treating the refugees with better conditions? Um, so I th that's, that's, a, that's a great conversation. I think the first thing is to, is to not allow those two issues to be uh, pit against one another. And so it was very interesting when Muslim ban happened, um, you know, around that same time, uh, I think it was a few months afterwards that, that uh, Trump had, had bombed uh, certain facilities in Syria. I, I don't remember which ones because he, he talked about how he was just enraged when he saw the, when, when he saw the chemical attacks uh, used by the Assad regime and, you know, felt compelled to actually take action, to take military action against Syria. And... A lot of people cheered that on, and it was sort of like you do realize that the same people that you've turned away from our border uh, in Muslim ban, and, and you know, people don't realize the restriction. I don't, remember, I don't know how many Syrian refugees actually were admitted into the country in 2018. I know that in 2017, I believe it was only 18 people total, 18 total Syrian refugees that actually were admitted uh, into our shores. Uh, that it's the same people here, right? So I think that. A lot of times we inherit uh, cognitive dissonance that exists with policymakers because we feel like that's the only language that we can speak with and the only way we can make things make sense to people. And I think it's important for us to push back on that and to say, look, it's, uh, you know, it's upon us to not just help refugees but to play a productive role in stopping the situations that are turning them into refugees that these refugees should be sources of hope, not sources of fear, sources of inspiration. Whether they're here or whether they're abroad, that they're human beings and sort of insisting on that essential human value. So I think from, a, uh, from, from, from a, uh, an activist perspective or from the things that we do, I, I do think, it's, I think we have the, the capacity to do both. I think that, in fact, I think that the more you interact with people on a human level, um, the deeper of an understanding you gain of their situation. And so I, I, I would hope that Americans that have uh, this, this idea of refugees or migrants would actually take the time to meet people and to listen to them and to listen to their stories. Something changes about you when you see one of those kids. Uh, if you look up, there's a BBC documentary called United States of Hate. Uh, United States of Hate was about my community in Texas. Don't ask me why Muslims chose to settle in Texas. You know, a state that has 10% of the country's hate groups, but uh, for some reason, Muslims chose Dallas and Houston, all right? So there are just a ton of Muslims, hundreds of thousands of Muslims in uh, Dallas, you know, and, and Houston, all right? You've, you've got uh, over 300 mosques in Texas. I don't know why, I don't know who has, whose idea it was, but it happened, all right? So we're there. It's sort of like how Somalis settled in Minnesota, Okay, it just doesn't make much sense, but okay, well, we just got to go for it at some point. We just got to deal with it. Uh, so United States of Hate was about the white supremacist um, armed militias that protest in front of our mosques regularly. So Dallas is the only place in the country where we have regular white, armed white supremacist uh, groups uh, or, or regularly have armed white supremacist groups protest outside of our mosques regularly. 
Not every once in a while, regularly, okay? And so BBC did a documentary about it. And um, they actually gave me the opportunity to talk to one of those white supremacists and to introduce him to a Syrian refugee family. And they had him on camera saying these horrific things about them. And then he sees a, 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 an eight-year-old girl whose leg was blown off and tripping over herself to get around the park with her family, this happy eight-year-old girl. And the guy just hung his head in shame. And he, he said, I feel like an idiot. I was like, good. Should, <laughs> right? You should feel like an idiot. You know, like that's the point, right? You, you can't say these things to people when they're actually in, in front of, when, when you start, I mean, there is some compassion, right? A natural instinct of compassion. So I think we need to expose people more to those stories, not wait for a news cycle uh, to bring it to us. Um, and that's why to me, you know, those, those projects like Humans of Syria, um, there was a, uh, a, a, a photojournalist who, um, who published all the images of uh, the protesters in Gaza whose legs had been blown off. There is a, um, there's another photojournalist. I, I wrote about this in the Dallas Morning News um, called Don't Let, the Shouting at, uh, Don't Let the Shouting in the Oval Office Distract Us from the Shouting at the Border. Um, because at that time they had that, Chuck, you know, Chuck Schumer and, and Trump and Pelosi sitting in the White House and yelling at each other, bickering. And it's like, let's not get distracted from the issue. And I think that it's important for us to amplify some of those projects. There, there, have, been, there have been people, photojournalists, that have actually tried to capture the stories of people at the border. Remember the caravan? You guys remember the caravan before uh, the, the, the people at the border of Tijuana were tear gassed and attacked um, because of the scary caravan? So th there was actually a photojournalist, and I just don't remember his name, but I wrote about in that article who went and who actually tried to tell the stories of these people at an individual level. Because once you start to understand people at an individual level, then you get a better pulse of what we should be doing with the circumstances that led them to those situations. Good evening. Thank you for being here. Um, I appreciate the broad view that you've given for the need for immigration policy. Uh, but I'm wondering, in the visits that you made to refugee camps, did you come across any of the reason why children were being separated from parents? And more importantly, did you encounter any reasons by which they're going to try to put children again with their parents? Because it's been reported that a lot of them weren't even uh, documented as to where the parent went and where the child is now. I can tell you that, um, so, so I had the, the opportunity to go to, most recently to Juarez uh, with Reverend Barber actually, Duke alumni, right, and the Poor People's Campaign. And um, we had a multi-faith coalition that went to Juarez. It was really interesting because you drive into Juarez, which is, you know, they call it the most dangerous place in the world, and you actually don't even go through a checkpoint. Uh, there's no immigration. It's sort of like go at your own risk. So no one even checks your papers before you go in there. You can literally drive into Mexico. Um, and start to drive through those camps, and it's at your own risk. Uh, and they have the Stay in Mexico program. And so every single person, it, it was just really, what struck me was that unlike the refugee crisis, every single person had a story that just seemed more tragic than the other. So I'll give you an example. There was a mother um, whose two-year-old child is an American citizen, but she's undocumented, and she's in one of those camps in Juarez. She literally held her child out and said, can you just get him across the border and I'll just die out here. 
but just let him, I want him to have a chance at life. And you think about that, and that's why I think about demonizing and vilifying the parents. These parents are so selfless. I mean, she literally said, I, I don't care, I'll just die out here, but can you take my baby across the border and he'll figure it out, you know, just connect him with someone so he can figure it out and he can have a chance at life. I mean, those types of situations are, are, you come across and every story was more tragic than the other. Um, and then it just becomes that vicious cycle of trafficking. Imagine if you've, if you've, if you've walked 8,000 miles to get to the border and then you get stuck. And then, you know, the only way that you can put food on the table for your child is to literally, uh, uh, you know, become a part of a trafficking operation, right? To, to, to prostitute yourself just in order to have enough food to feed your child. So the, the separation is perpetuated in many ways and the situations are very unique. But then we're coming back into the States. So if I, you know, how many of you have been through secondary screening coming back into the country before? All right. You go to a secondary screening room, it's just another room, right? You've got just the blue chairs, and you've got a picture of the president on the wall, and then you've got you know, the agent, the, 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 the border patrol is going to come out to you, ask you a few questions, right? So coming back, driving back into El Paso, I just want you to understand this, is driving back into El Paso, I got pulled out of the car. Okay, I was with a, a bunch of faith leaders. I got pulled out of the car for secondary, Okay. I went in that, that, that secondary inspection room, and every seat has handcuffs on it. They cuff you for no reason. I mean, why would you cuff people for secondary, right, for questions as they're coming into the country? And so the dehumanization starts there, right, of just the, the, the way that you're treated at that point. So when you're processing people, you're not processing people as human beings. You're processing people like animals. So it's very easy for people to get lost in that process. It's very easy for, those, for, for people to get separated. And then, if, I did, if, if, we didn't, if, if we didn't have the ethical calling to take basic measures in the beginning to treat people humanely, why would those same people and those same agencies then really exert themselves to try to bring those people back together, right? That, so that, that dehumanization starts at the border. And so when you're ripping people apart, you, you don't care who you're throwing into what warehouse or what detention center or what prison cell. You don't care if you're getting the paperwork right because you don't care about the people that you're processing. And, you know, the reality is, by the way, and I actually would make an admission, that this is not just a Trump problem. A lot of the stuff was happening under Obama. A lot of the stuff was happening under the Obama administration. I think a lot of us were not aware to what extent that this stuff was already happening. Uh, but more people were deported under the Obama administration than the Bush administration. He expanded ICE, and though the Dreamers legislation was put in, we ha we've had a broken immigration system for a very long time, and I think just with everything else, Trump just amplifies everything through its extreme ugliness, um, you know, just like he does with everything else, right? And so for us, we now have a calling, right? We, we now have a duty, having been exposed to this as a country, to say, you know what, not only should we be keeping families united, we also should not, you know, I don't want families to be in permanent detention in warehouses together. They need to be given a path to a dignified existence. So it's, it's sort of overhaul of the system from start to finish, how you treat people from the beginning all the way to the end of that process. Um, firstly, thank you for sharing these stories with us. 
Um, in terms of the process of dehumanization, there's a lot of misinformation, right? So a, a significant majority of people don't know that much of the people in detention centers are legal asylum seekers. Um, so how do we as people, but also content creators and journalists and consumers of social media tackle that irresponsibility and that misinformation? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think I might not, I alluded to this, but let me just be more explicit. Immigration advocacy groups have done extensive research on this stuff, on the policy level. So like in Texas, it's RAISIS, right, and the United Dream Team, North Texas Dream Team, and, and so many other groups that have just done incredible work on the policy side of this, where people need to be educated on the policy. So I think writing op-eds is very important, and trying to get op-eds situated is very important, where you just challenge these false narratives that exist about people. Uh, that exist about uh, you know uh, immigrants. The second thing is the human side of this. I, you know, I'm a big Maya Angelou fan, and so when I went to when I went to Syria, there was this this quote of hers that just penetrated me. Um, when you when you would talk to the people, for, at first there was a great skepticism, right? Like they don't really feel like talking. There's that blank, and then when they when they when they start to open up to you. And they tell you everything about their lives. Everything about their lives. Right? They'll tell you where they came from. They'll tell you what they used to have and why it was taken away from them. And I used to be this and I used to be that. Because they haven't been heard for years and years and years and years. So they just open up. And they go from not telling you anything to telling you more than you could imagine. Everything. Once they have a little bit of comfort. You know, Maya Angelou said that there's no greater agony than a, an, an untold story inside. When you feel like you have a story that hasn't been told, it is agony. When all people see you as are a bunch of scattered refugees and, and poor people that are trying to take their stuff. It's like I had an identity. I was not a refugee. I was not a migrant. I had something. I, I am somebody, right? I am somebody. You know? That concept. So storytelling is important, and I think that there's the bridge here. The Eilan al-Kurdi and the Jacqueline Cal, the bridge here is that you need to have the story, generate the momentum from the story, and then have a clear policy path that is articulated in the midst of that story as that momentum is created, and then push for it. So I think it's all of us sort of working hand in hand, but don't try to recreate the wheel. You don't, try, don't try to recreate it, because you've got groups, immigration advocacy groups, that have done the research, that have done the work. It's important to work with them and to see how we can actually move people towards policy uh, makers. And not just shattering these myths at the public level, but also pushing forth facts at the policy making level, for facts to actually drive the conversation at the policy level. So two questions um, from the floor, and I'm going to ask them together. Um, what has been the most challenging expectation in your own thinking that you've had to change? What did you not expect you'd have to think about? That's the first one. And the second one is, um, you mentioned the significance of understanding human experiences, especially in the current politicization of the refugee crisis. It has become so important to learn about the deeply human experience. For those of us who do not currently have the capacity to go directly and talk to the people who have experienced such inhumane and undignified circumstances, do you have any particular readings or documentaries that you feel 
depict individuals' experiences well. Okay, wonderful. So the first question, I think that one thing I always struggle with is the urgency of the moment and the generational implications of our current policies, right? So it's, on one hand, it's like, I just want to protest 24-7. I don't want to stop protesting. I just want to live at the border and do nothing but continue to protest and protest and protest and just say, America, what the hell is wrong with you? How do you go to sleep at night knowing that this is happening in your country, that these ICE immigration detention centers exist around you and that this brutality is taking place and you're not doing anything about it? And then on the other hand, it's like, well, how can you play the long game and push forward? And so naturally, um, you know, wanting to, to, to just... Wanting to just channel relief and aid uh, can sometimes become, uh, can sometimes overwhelm you because it, it, it has, there's something, there, there's something fulfilling about actually being able to sit in, in front of someone and immediately relieve some of their needs, right? But I'm still not, those children are still not, you know, going to schools. There's still not a dignified existence in place for them. Um, and I'll tell you one of those moments that, that actually changed a lot for me. What I was sort of struggling with, okay, well, I helped 100 people, but I just drove away from 100,000 people. This young girl, a uh, Syrian refugee, once again, and to me, these situations are identical. I operate out of the same love for these people, and I see them in the same, the same light. And, you know, I look for those moments that, that make something click. And so there was this young girl named Rahaf. Uh, Rahaf was 14 when I first met her, and I actually marked the location of, of her tent. So I could go back every time I went back to see her again and check up on her family. And uh, Rahaf, you take food and water and stuff to her and medical supplies. She doesn't want any of that. She, we, we took micro homes, like little trailer homes to the Syrian refugees. She didn't want any of that. She just wanted education. She wanted to go to school. And so at 16, I actually sat with her and I said, uh, why do you want to go to school so bad? You know, and she said that uh, I, I need to be educated because I need to lift my people out of this condition. And I said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, I want to be a lawyer. So that's interesting. You want to be a lawyer. Uh, what type of lawyer? She said, a human rights lawyer. So that I, and she actually said, I want to prosecute Bashar al-Assad at the UN court for crimes against humanity. She said it with such confidence in her voice. I, just, I, was, I was just blown away by how she didn't flinch. This wasn't, this wasn't a cute story. This was... This is what's been occupying her mind for the last seven years, is that I'm gonna, I'm, gonna grow, I'm gonna be the one to champion my people. And so what I realized in that process is that, you know what, even if you help, no one can, no one can lift the people like their own, right? There was something, again, last week I was just talking about the intersection of Malcolm and Martin. There was something poetic about Malcolm because Malcolm was set up to fail in America. He literally was the, American, the, the, the black tragedy, the African-American tragedy. Um, in person, incarnation, right? That, that everything was set up against him, facilitated his disaster, and instead, you know, he built himself up to be a, an adequate spokesperson of his people and refused to succumb to all of that. And so my thing is that if we can uplift some of those stories and give some of those people a chance to succeed, no one can tell their people's story better than them, and no one can champion their people's rights uh, as much as they can. So we need, to, we need to amplify those stories and we need to uplift some of those individuals and not despair. And, and this is not belittling the small good deed because if you look at the small good deed in comparison with the large horrible situations, at times it's not worth doing the good deed. And so you don't do the good and you don't solve the evil that's leading to those situations. And so 
I think, you know, don't, don't belittle the opportunities that you have to work with refugees and migrants and people in your situation. One of those examples, by the way, we started the Muslims for Migrants campaign. Imam Zaid Shakar and, my, and myself through Celebrate Mercy. I raised over $150,000, which is enough to free um, over 15 people to reunite families. Some of, these, some of these people that we were able to free from detention had missed the birth of their, their own children. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to say the beauty of it, but what was really uh, amazing is that none of them actually know that they're going to be freed. So some of them had been in there for so long, and it's like someone just paid your bail, and it's like, wait, what? Who? I mean, it just, they had no idea that someone was going to pay their bail. And they got out, and um, all of them are committed uh, unanimously, each one of them. No, no one wanted to just go home and forget about everything that happened. Each one of them said, how can I help the campaign? How can I now help other people? And so uh, I want to actually put that on everybody. Please go to launchgood.com slash migrants and read about our campaign. Launchgood.com slash migrants and read about our campaign because... My hope and dream is that we'll actually be able to expand that campaign, and every time they lock someone up, we will free them. And hopefully each one of them will become a spokesperson for their people, and we could then amplify their stories using the media, using the arts, and then push for policy, put those people on Capitol Hill. Um, I was there on Capitol Hill when you had some of the uh, Yemeni, um, Yemeni children whose parents were blown up in drone strikes that were funded by our government. And people could not look them in the eye. People hung their heads in shame. Even people that had some of the most vitriolic, bigoted speech couldn't look those children in the eyes because they knew that we did that. We put them in that situation. Uh, we need to disrupt and make people uncomfortable, starting with ourselves. And so I think amplifying those stories is important. I'm not from here, but I'm sure there's, there's, there are refugee services here. Are there Syrian refugees or, or, or any type of refugee services here in North Carolina that you all are aware of? Mm -hmm. Who's, who can connect the questioners? There you go. Armor, the, the man who can do it all, all right? So, man, connect, connect you all. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Assalamualaikum. Um, so, I was wondering, as students um, in North Carolina, we're pretty far away from the border. We're not, um, you know, like, religiously skilled in any way to do that kind of work. So, like, what are tangible steps that we can take to address this border issue, but also more than that, like, like all the work that's being done often, like, you don't see, like, palpable outcomes of that. Like, you don't see any impact of it. So, like, in the process of doing so, um, how do you keep yourself motivated and keep going like to fight this battle every single day? So again, there's this element of analysis paralysis. It's just too much going on, so I can't do anything. Um, you can do something. You have a role to play. I don't know which groups in particular work out here that do immigration advocacy. Can anyone shout some of them out? Anybody? Immigration? What is it? Church World Service. Uh, you got the, you got, you got. There you go. Islamic Relief does work out here. Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign uh, out here. So I think connecting with those groups and seeing what we can do uh, to uplift them and, and just playing a part in being a volunteer and being an extra person, you'd be amazed how, how uh, short-handed <laughs> these groups are, even these major issues that actually dominate our, uh, our political discourse. Like, you'd be amazed how little volunteers these groups can usually find to actually just do some of the legwork that's necessary 
to move to make meaningful change in these things. So I think connect with some of these groups and see what you can do to make meaningful change in your capacity. And your job is not to solve the crisis. Your job is to do your part in solving it and to amplify it so that we can collectively solve it. All right, so kind of removing it from the individual domain into the collective domain. Uh, this country needs to be very uncomfortable right now. It really needs to be uncomfortable. And the border is not at El, in El Paso. The border is in your ICE detention centers here. It's not in El Paso. It's here as well. So we got, we, we've got to shine light on those things as well and do our work uh, so that people are aware of those as well. I would recommend frequent protests in front of your ICE detention centers. People need to know where the ICE detention centers are. I need to know what's happening. Okay, what's that? Sorry, you said something. <laughs> I'm right here. For the, for the sake of time, this will be our final question for the evening. Good evening, and thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, you know, what do you think of this new phenomena that was starkly evident in Houston, Texas yesterday with the Maudi, Howdy Modi rally, wherein uh, 50,000 immigrants who were in the stadium, they cheered about the bragging of Prime Minister Modi about 11 million people from Kashmir being held in an open-air prison, 50 days and counting, and cheered President Trump when he talked about making more stringent policies for the border. These were 50,000 immigrants who happened, you know, fighting for their minority and immigration rights, and they cheered President Trump talking about making the border more stringent. How do we counter that phenomena, and what do you think of that? Yeah, so I was in the protest on the outside, and I can say that we probably had, I was in Houston yesterday, we probably had 20 to 30,000 people on the outside too, so that was very encouraging, a diverse group. Um, that was a diverse group of people outside in, in Houston heat, which is not easy to deal with. Uh, what was going on on the inside. Um, let me just say this, you know, people ask me, but they, they counter and they say Trump's Muslim ban is not really a Muslim ban, because he didn't ban all Muslims, he didn't put it on all Muslim countries. And I tell people, Trump doesn't hate Muslims. Trump loves rich Muslims that give him money to do horrible things. Uh, Trump is, you know, he's got his resorts in some of these countries, he's making money off of some of these countries, he is, he will put his hand in the hand of any, you know, Muslim dictator that's going to further enable his global policy. Um, when it comes to white supremacy and the global rise of fascism, it was really interesting because uh, the name, what's his name, Brevik, um, who carried out the massacre in, in Norway a few years ago, Andrew, Bre Andrew Brevik, cited, actually cited the RSS, cited Modi's group as inspiration for his white supremacist attack because he saw quote-unquote Hindu fascism, and I hate to use the word Hindu because the real Hindus were the ones that were protesting with us against Modi yesterday. Um, I don't like to assign that to a religion, but, you know, this, this group of, of nationalists and fascists in India have been an inspiration to white supremacist movements globally. And so people are not looking at this through the lens of color. They're looking at it through the lens of nationalism, and they're looking at it through the lens of fascism. And the reality is, is that... Um, you know, I, I had, look, I went to Christchurch uh, after that massacre in March, that terrorist attack in March, and I read through that manifesto. 
Okay? We are importing fascism now. We are importing terror. As much as the world is looking at what's taking place in our country right now and repelled and disgusted by it, these nationalist movements are gaining traction. Um, Steve Bannon is going around Europe, uh, riling them up and using America as a successful project, as an example of a successful project. So what changed? Modi was banned from the, the only person ever, it's just incredible, the only person ever banned from entering the United States under the Relig International Religious Freedom Act was Modi for, for, the, for the massacre of, of thousands of Muslims in Gujarat. What changed to where he was given this glorious welcome last night, by the way, not just by Republicans, there were some Democratic Congress people in there too. You know what changed? Money. It was, you know, those people, those, those, that, some of them who deemed themselves allies to the Muslim community were standing up on the stage, handing him these, these gifts, while Trump and Modi shouted or, or played to these fascist sentiments. Ted Cruz, Cornyn, of course, did their thing. Um, you also had Democrats that were there too. The problem is, is that it's fascism, and then the inability to take a principled stand against fascism that continues to enable it to grow. And so, why? Because this isn't really about color, it's not about religion, it's about power. It's about power. And so, nationalism, though it may have different iterations around the world, it is one ideology similar to how European white supremacy is no different from American white supremacy. Nationalism is, is, is one hateful ideology. So my message to, to people is, you know, if, if tyrants recognize a shared stake in one another, then it's about time that oppressed people and, and uh, you know, recognize their shared stake in one another as well, and that we stop looking at causes and look at the cause, unite those causes as one. Right? So if it's an occupation here, an occupation there. If it's apartheid here, apartheid there. If it's terror there, it's terror here. It doesn't matter who the victim is because the, the, the hate that it's operating out of is, is, is the same. So it's important to tie those movements together, not as a means of diminishing those movements or, or, or disproportionately assigning efforts to some of them over others, but as a means of recognizing our shared interest in working together, our shared humanity. And, uh, and, and repelling it. So I was very, I'll be honest with you, I was very encouraged with the amount of people that came to the protest outside, and I was so encouraged by the diversity of the people that were at that protest. I mean, you had the amount of, of, the amount of people that came from the Sikh community, right, to that protest. It was, it was absolutely beautiful. You had people that, that have no connection whatsoever to India or Pakistan or Kashmir, but they were all there. People that drove took buses from around the country to be there at that counter-protest. So that's where my hope lies. It lies in the fact that more people, or there, you know, that there was a greater diversity of people on the outside than there was on the inside uh, that were cheering on that hateful ideology. Um, please join me in thanking Imam Suleiman one more time. Thank you so much.